He's going to talk about, well, you know, sometimes I struggle with titling my sermons. Well, here's an example of how I might struggle with titling my sermons. I got three options, basically, there. Is this about divorce? Is it not really about marriage? Or is it about how to treat another the way that God would want us to with love and respect? So you can choose all or synthesize all three. Because it looks like he's talking about divorce here, because that's the question, divorce. But really... What he's going to start talking about seems to be more like what is the what is the substance of marriage, being married, and then really ultimately like what we've been seeing and even in chapter eighteen, it's about how you treat another person. Jesus basically teaches we need to treat people like God would want us to treat people with loving 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 kindness and grace and mercy and and, and treating people well, treating people like they're people with that intrinsic value that Christianity, you know, so believes in, you know, that we're not evolved from monkeys necessarily, but we are created by a creator God who has made us in his image. There's this intrinsic value in humanity. And so we need to treat each other with love and respect. And certainly, if we're married to them. Next one, please. So the question is this, in Matthew 19, one through three. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So the first thing we see here, obviously Jesus is leaving. This is him making his way into Jerusalem, okay? But, but the, the issue, the point at hand here is these Pharisees. Well, it's interesting to see again that Jesus once again is doing what he's doing, healing crowds of people, ministering, caring. Again, the heart of Christ from the beginning of his ministry to the end is that he's constantly giving himself to people, constantly healing, constantly ministering, constantly there for people. And in that, that's a sermon in itself, how to have a heart of Christ, really. I mean, he doesn't stop caring. I mean, it's almost like it happens so much, it's so part of who he is that the temptation is, is to keep moving on from there. When we see little snippets like large crowds. Have you ever been followed by a large crowd? No, I haven't. Smallish. But seriously, large crowd? Imagine how tiring this could be to constantly have people. Hey, yo, can I have your attention, Jesus? I mean, let's just give them a little bit of like respect and do here of, of how tiring this can be and how laborious this could be. Large crowds are constantly following them. It's a little sentence that we can just blow right past and get into the meat of this chapter. But man, Jesus constantly served these people and they were constantly, and bear in mind, a lot of these people were just takers as well. It's one thing to hang out with people who, you know, where there's a balance of give and take. I remember I was in college learning about communication, and there was always, we talk about how there's takers and givers, and usually we balance each other out. But in this situation, we got Jesus given and given and given, and a group of people who are just consuming and consuming and consuming. And his disciples who, you know, consume a wee bit, but also give a wee bit. And that would be, I hope, us, you know. 
But still, a large crowd here he is healing them, not judging them, but healing them. So, some Pharisees, they came to test him. Again, when we see the Pharisees talk to Jesus, most of the time their intentions aren't very pure. They aren't genuine. They, aren't, they didn't come to Jesus to seek advice. Oh, Jesus, there's a big issue going on just now about divorce. And you have one side versus the other side. What, what side do you take because we respect you? No, nothing like that. It was they want to catch him. They want to trap him. That's a motivation. And that's sad. You know, but still Jesus gives awesome answers. He gives beautiful, wonderful answers. So they came to test him, to, tr- to try, to make trial of, to test for the person of ascertaining his quality or what he thinks or how he will behave himself under pressure. Will he agree with the popular authority of the day? Now the Pharisees, they had their opinion and they liked their opinion. Their opinion's pretty bonkers, by the way. And they want to know if they're going to agree with them or not. And you know what? Jesus is not going to agree with them. But he's going to give a really good reason. Uh, and he's going to use a higher authority. They're thinking they're going to trap him by using the authority of Moses. But he's going, to, he's going to actually clarify Moses. And he's also going to appeal to a great authority, the creator God, who created the institution of marriage. But we will see that in a moment. But the idea of divorce here, we need to deal with that really quick, culturally speaking. Okay, Here we got the word simply translated, you know, apaluo. To set free. It's almost like setting a slave free so they may go and live their life, to be liberated. But in this culture of this day, that's not what happens when we think of divorce in the sense of a marriage where a, or a woman and a man are separated. The cultural implications here are pretty, pretty nasty. A woman who's put away from marriage, who's been sent away from marriage, a lot of time has to you know, resort to really tragic lifestyle decisions. How will she live? There's no social security or any kind of social benefit system back then. Nowadays, divorce is cheap because, hey, if I leave my husband or vice versa, it doesn't matter. I'll just go to the government and they'll give me money and I'm cool, right? That's what, but here, that wasn't an option. If a man said, I want you to leave because you burnt my toast, that's life devastating. She could die. She could starve. She could live in the streets. And what happens a lot of times is she would give herself to prostitution, which is, of course, sexual immorality. And so this is not a loving option. It's not like, well, listen, we kind of don't like each other. And you know what? You'd be happier if you lived in your own council home and I live in my own council home. And let's just be at peace. And then the kids, well, that's a different issue altogether I want to get into. It breaks and hardens my heart, thinking that kids don't get affected by divorce. My wife and I have been doing youth ministry in shots for the last 12 years. And let me tell you, it affects the children. It does. It tears them apart. So even today we say we're maybe free in a sense. But no, there's still no freedom. There's still, and Jesus is going to deal with this ontological binding that marriage does. We're going to deal with that. So even though we think we're free and marriage is cheap and easy nowadays, it's not. There's still a binding that will break, that will snap a person, our people, a family. So here, this is the implications I just want to draw out is actually even though in our society it might be made cheap and easy option, back then it was devastating. To send a woman away in divorce because she burnt the toast or she is getting old and ugly and wrinkly, whatever. Cheap, it just, and that's what was going on. It was really superficial, dumb things. And they were sending, oh, I, want, I want the new model of women. This, this old model is no good no more. 
you're sending a woman away to her death, basically, or to some really tragic, immoral lifestyle. It was not loving, it was not kind, and it was not liberating in a sense of setting a slave free, as the word might be translated. Next slide, please. So there's two opinions in the day of Christ. The opinion of Hillel and his followers, um, these are religious Jewish leaders at the time, and they're theories, okay? So they're like the, the Jewish theologians of the time. And Hillel would be the, maybe the opinion a lot of the Pharisees liked, though <laughs> they liked his theory, because his theory basically says, she burnt the toast. That's my Jewish accent. I hope it sounds right. I say it's grounds for divorce. No, that doesn't sound Jewish at all. I should do a Chinese accent again. Okay, anyways, so basically there's any and all reasons, basically, she can be divorced. We'll deal with how they got to that in a moment. And then there's the other camp who says, no way, Shammai, no way. Divorce can only be justified because of sexual immorality. Okay, there's the two opinions of the day. What is Jesus going to say? Next slide, please. But what I like about what Jesus does say is he gets right to the heart. What is divorce? There would be no divorce if there would be no marriage. And there would be no marriage unless God created it. So he gets right to the heart of the matter. Let's not deal with, you know, the, the option of divorce. Let's deal with what marriage really is all about. And then we should have greater understanding of whether or not we should divorce. Right? So he goes right back to the very beginning. Matthew 19, 4 says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. We got a male and a female, and there's obvious functions there, right? <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to talk about that. Even high school kids understand that in biology class. There's obvious functions that go there. And for this reason, for the functions that happen in males and females and procreation and whatnot, a mother or a man leaves mommy and daddy. They leave, bye-bye mommy and daddy, I'm going to start my own home, my own family, and two, become one flesh. What does that mean? Two becoming one flesh. That's a strong word, one flesh. No, it means two become partners, and they hang out, and they have Children, maybe, and they have fun. But when they don't have fun anymore, they, they divorce each other and then they leave. Or they stay married, but one lives in this town, one lives in this town, and they call this separation thing. You know, that's, that's what marriage is all about. No, two become one flesh. What do you understand about what God made here? Two become one flesh. What's that mean? Well, first of all, let's look at the word united. United. Kalawio. Literally, to glue. To glue together. Cement. I like that word. To cement. Together, to, it's, how do you break apart cement? You have to break it and crack it and smash it. It's not like you have one thing and another thing. They become glued or fixed or fastened together. To join or fasten firmly together. To join oneself to cleave to. Some the older translation might say to cleave. Right? To cleave to. to glue. I like the idea of to glue. Literally, that's what it means, to glue. You, you would use this term to talk about, I'm going to go glue something together. Like, oh, this is broken. I need to glue it together. But this is talking about two actual people. And look at this thing. It's almost like a mutinous creature. You have these flesh monsters coming together, being glued and stuck and fused together. Yeah, it's crazy. Do you understand that? When you get married, this is what happens. Two become one flesh. And I'm telling you, it's not just poetic. I've seen a lot of people get married, including myself, 
And I've seen literally that this happens. You might think, well, okay, now we're married and we're doing the fun stuff. And that's kind of two becoming one. But you watch them and you watch them. And they start acting alike. They start looking alike. They even start dressing alike. Like I was talking, joking about Gary and Julie today. They have the same kind of shirts. They start dressing uniform. Me and my wife do it as well. Their minds become infused. They become fused together. Their habits, their schedules, their desires in life, spiritually, all the, emotionally, all these things literally become two becoming one. So it's not just two mates hanging out. And it's not just having fun romantically. There's something greater when time happens. Just having that relationship. Two literally will become one. So the flesh. I mean, this is crazy. How does two become one flesh? And the word he uses here is, I love this word, sarke. It means flesh or the body. Flesh, the soft substance of the living body, which covers bones and is permeated with blood. So yeah, it's our actual meat tissue. The actual meat. Carne would be the Latin word, and that's where we get like, like the word for meat, or like, like one of my favorite Mexican words is carne asada. It means meat of the cow. Mm, steak. It talks about the actual meat. So, and then the body. The body. It's, our, it's your body. And, and you can synthesize these two things and, and, and speak of maybe what he's talking about here, living creatures, whether man or beast. So you become a new beast when you're married. A new beast, a beautiful beast. It is, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a nasty thing, it's a wonderful thing. A new person, a new man, a new beast. Two becoming one. So I guess the question here is this. If what Jesus is saying is true then, this is a, a real fusing together of two people, think of the implications of divorce. How then do you split this thing apart? How, how exactly do you tear it and zip it and pull it and yank it? Is it like taffy and it pulls it like, what was it like? Is it like water and you have to like boil it and then steam and then you start separating? How do you break these things apart? What do you do? It's a tragic process. Emotionally, how's the effect? Physically, sociologically, and the reason why I put that is, is relationships do get affected by how people treat or mistreat each other. Psychological, you know, how, damage to the mind, basically. Relational, children. We've talked about children before, and I'm going to say it again. Children do get affected in a massive way. Children need mommies and daddies. And some, I know in our culture will say, well, there's mommy and daddy figures, and I'm glad there is. Because if they can't have the best, mommy and daddy, then they should have something that would replace that. Mommy and daddy figures, maybe grands and grandpas and uncles. You know, and that's great that it's there, but it's not the best. The best is what God has made. Moms and dads raising families. Next one, please. Um, in the King James, in their footnote, funny enough, um, I stumbled upon this. It talks about this, this yoking, this two becoming one. Uh, and here he says, um, this, this is what God has put together or united together. From the King James notes, it says this, half yoked together. I'm sorry for the King James-ness because, you know, I, I enjoy the opportunity to speak Elizabethan English from time to time. Half yoked together. As oxen in the plow, where each must pull equally in order to bring it on. Bring it on. I, I see this as life, as a good family, a spiritual, full, complete family. It requires two to bring it on. Like this yoke requires two beasts to bring it on. Among the ancients, they put a yoke among the necks of a new married couple. Or chains on their arms. I kind of like that. We just start doing that again. That'd be kind of cool. To shoe 
that, I think that's a fancy old English way of saying to show, that they were to be one, closely united and pulling equally together in all the concerns of life. You see, so again, it's not just two mates, you know, it's, this is something much more. It's something much more than that. Next slide, please. So appealing to the authority of Moses, that's what the Pharisees, they think they're clever. Oh, but Moses said, and and who's going to argue against Moses? Moses said. Well, first of all, I like how Jesus just went to the creator God. He goes, well, this is what creator God did do. But yeah, you know what? What Moses said wasn't wrong, by the way. They just misinterpreted it. That's the bottom line. What Moses said was not wrong. They just misinterpreted it. Okay, here's what goes on. Matthew 19, 7, and this is what the Pharisees say. Why them? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? Here you go. Here's a fancy little piece of paper. Here you go. Congratulations. You have earned a certificate of divorce. Here's your cap and gown. What, what does that even mean? It sounds so romantic and so just... And so, but no, this is tragic. <laughs> this is tragic. Why did he say, here, have a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did he say that? Well, Jesus is going to say why he said that. But first of all, let's consort or consult the actual verse. I believe this is refers to Deuteronomy 24.1. Which Deuteronomy, by the way, is one of the books of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the law, that is so filled with love. It is of the books of Moses, the most lovingest book. It is filled with, you know, returning. It's the second law. Listen, you've, you've, you've walked away from me, but come back. God loves you. Choose a day whom you will love. I mean, it's filled with love, this book of Deuteronomy. And here, I think this is loving as well, but also kind of interesting. Let's look at what he says here. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because some of these words can be interpreted to, in all kinds of ways depending on how you want to. Well, she's displeasing to me. She does not keep my house clean enough. She yells at me and my children first thing in the morning. And these things are displeasing, but is this what Moses is talking about? That's the question. If a man man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds her, here's some more specific, good, I'm glad it gets more specific, because he finds something indecent about her. Okay, so it's not just being displeasing. It's displeasing because there's something indecent about her. Then he writes her certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. What does it mean, indecent? It's indecent that she burns my toast. It's indecent that she yells at me and the children in the morning. That's not what indecent means. Now, while I was looking for the definition of this, I came across some pretty rude things. And think Hebrew is very expressive and can be very rude sometimes. And so because we're a rated PG church, I have edited some of the rudeness out and made it concise and simple and clean. <laughs> and I hope you forgive me for that. And I put a, a, a possible definition below. Whether you would have agreed with Hill, Helly, or Hello, or Shem, I put Hell or Shem for short, because I like to shorten people's names, would be determined by how you would have interpreted this word. So whether you say any and all reasons or just for sexual morality, depending on which way you go, would depend on how you would interpret this. Possible definition, nakedness, nudity, shame, or shameful exposure. That word shameful exposure I took license to put, because the way how they described it was pretty gross. And so the idea is here is a woman basically who's prostituting herself, kind of. You know, she's, she has, she's loose, okay? <laughs> if, if you find yourself in that situation, 
yeah, I guess you can divorce her. It has nothing to do with burning toast or cleaning the house or raising children, by the way. This word here is very specifically a rude kind of word. A woman who is prone to this kind of immoral kind of sexual lives. Next slide, please. And by the way, I do apologize for the young ones here. This is a bit rated 15. Uh, don't blame me. Blame, blame Jesus because he put it here in the Bible. <laughs> so please, uh, it might, might be some discussions later on, but, um, but please bear with me. I'll try to keep as clean as possible. Okay, why did Moses even say these things? Jesus is going to talk about, so we looked at what Moses said in in this divorce thing. But why did Moses, why did God, don't forget, Moses isn't just a man by himself. He's a man who hears from God, so he's an agent of God. So God obviously told Moses to say these things, right? Yeah, of course he did. Moses can't speak on his own. He's a prophet. Um, And if he did, I'm sure he would have closed it like Paul did. He goes, I'm speaking for myself. But Moses said he hears from God, and he's saying something that's from God. Why would God allow this divorce? Especially if the cultural significance, the cultural implications are so dra- tragic as they are. Well, Matthew 19, 8 to 9, Jesus goes on to talk about why he had to do this thing. And bear in mind, this, he went back to the beginning for a reason. This wasn't a part of the plan. This is like an amendment, an unfortunate amendment. This had, divorce had nothing to do with the plan of marriage. It should never be thought about before marriage. God never thought about before marriage. He thought, it wasn't like he was surprised or anything, but it wasn't his intention. Divorce came as an unfortunate consequence of hard, stubborn, rebellious hearts. That's basically what Jesus is gonna say to us right now. Matthew 19, eight says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Bottom line, unforgiving, stubborn, unloving hearts. It would be better that they separated from one another lest they killed one another. It's unfortunate. What's better, murder or divorce? They both are horrible. They both are no good. But God says, you know, because you're hardened hearts, I have to let you have this. It has nothing to do with the plan that God had initiated when it comes to marriage. It had nothing to do with the plan. It's an unfortunate amendment. But it was not this way from the beginning. Again, Jesus is agreeing with what I just said there, but it was not this way from the beginning. This was not the plan. This is not what was constituted in marriage. It was an unfortunate amendment because of the hard hearts of people. They can't love each other. They can't care for each other. They can't get along. They can't deal with basic problems in life. So it gets stacked up and up and up and up and up and resentment happens and hatred happens. And then, yes, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. It's again, let's look at these words. Sexual immorality. Um, it's pornea. You may know where we get the words, that might, word might come into play into English language. Pornea. What do you think that might, what does that sound like to you? Pornography. That's where we get the word pornography. It comes from this Greek word pornea. It speaks of illicit, cheap, easy, wrongful handling of, of, of sex. It's, it's, it's just, again, this, this points to what Moses kind of said in Deuteronomy. In, 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 this, in this word, pornea, is, is kind of a broad stroke of sexual immorality, of, of wrong use of sex. And there's various examples to the scriptures. In here, 
He's saying this, these are the reasons. If, 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 if the woman's just, if she's living in sin like this and she's just out there, then yeah, I mean, I guess you can have that divorce. You know, if things don't change. Basically, it's a woman who's given up in sin. It's, and when I see this, it's not like she made a mistake either. Because some people might be really harsh and legalistic, like, oh, well, she cheated with me in her mind or whatever, or she actually did cheat. I know a lot of really good Christian couples that actually restoration happens. And I believe, in context of what we're learning here, that if restoration can happen, if forgiveness can happen, then that's preferable. Isn't that what we're reading here? Isn't, isn't marriage permanent? Isn't or what we're learning about, about forgiveness even from last week? Isn't it about forgiving all kinds of sins? So if a woman stumbles or a man stumbles in sexual sin marriage, I don't think the automatic immediate response is divorce either. I think what he's talking about here is a habitual sinful lifestyle that will not change. But she keeps cheating on me. Kind of, I hate to say it, it's kind of like the Hosea situation, where Hosea, the prophet, married a prostitute. And she had all, the, all these children. I can't remember exactly how many. But they were all from different guys. Now, if I were Hosea, I would say, here's your certificate of divorce. I'm out of here. Except God did tell him to stay with her. So, okay. But here, again, a person given, totally given to a sexual, sinful lifestyle. I believe yeah, that's good reason to leave a person. If it can't be worked out, if, can't be worked out, if there's no repentance, if there's no change. Maybe you married a woman who's not even a Christian, or vice versa. Maybe a woman married a man who wasn't a Christian, and they're addicted to pornography or whatever. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to keep it PG. I'm sorry. But, okay, these are life issues. Maybe that happens, but maybe they need to meet the Holy Spirit. They need to meet God and have a change, repentant life. So what we need to do is treat them, you know, gracefully and mercifully like we would any other unsaved person. Especially if two have become one. You know? Because it's dividing, to, to tear, to rip apart. It's, it's, it's painful, it's hurtful. So again, if a person marries another woman, it's like him leaving her and himself committing adultery. To have unlawful relations with another woman. To commit adultery, simply put, hey, that's not your wife. Where's your wife? Where's the one that you are actually united to? Okay, let's move on. So the bottom line is, and this is what the, his disciples clearly see, and I think we see it as well this morning, and of course in context this makes sense. Getting married is a risky thing, isn't it not? If it's ontologically that strong, it should not be entered in lightly. It is a risky thing. And if it's permanent, if it's everlasting in a sense of our lives on earth. It's a risky thing. Okay? How can one know for sure this is the right person for their whole lifetime? That's between you and that person. I can't answer it. You know, ask God. Maybe he can show you. But I, I can't tell you. you. Marriage should never be entered in lightly. And that's what the disciples were saying. The disciples said in Matthew 19.10, if this situation between a husband and a wife, or if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, is it better not to marry? What's their thoughts? I thought about it. What are they thinking? Are they thinking, well, I'm going to get married to this woman because if she really makes me upset, I'll just divorce her and get another one. Maybe they kind of agree with Pharisees. You know, well, if that's the case, then what's the point of getting married? Ugh. You know, that's, that's kind of how I see this. And I think Jesus' reply is this, yeah, you better think about it. And that's why he says, not everyone can accept this word. 
Some can and some can't get married. You need to make sure that this person you're going to marry is the person that you want to ontologically be united with, that you want to be glued and fused together with. Because the breaking of that thing apart is damaging for all, in a lot of ways, as we discussed. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. And when we use the word eunuchs, I think he's referring to basically people who are not given. In fact, I put that down here on the bottom. Eunuch, one who abstains from marriage for various reasons. Uh, for example, Paul, and we'll see an example of Paul here later on. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. And I actually know Christians who actually believe that this is them. And Paul said this, I say to the unmarried as to the widows, that it is good for them to remain even as I. Of course, assuming that he is either widowed, divorced possibly, or just unmarried. There's, there's a debate on whether or not he was once married or not. But here it seems that he is not married. Because he says, it's better off you say that way. And we know Paul dedicated his life to the kingdom of God. And he wasn't bound to a family. He was able to travel freely without worrying about, oh, how's the wife and how's the children? He moved and moved and moved and moved and it didn't stop him. So he says, yeah, I'll give an, I understand that. And you're right. You disciples, you need to think for yourself. Are you going to settle down and keep and love that woman of yours, you know, and be married and faithful to that woman and that family? That It's a beautiful, wonderful institution. Of course, it's from God. There's nothing wrong with getting married. It comes from God. But are you going to commit to it? Are you going to commit to her or not? If you can't commit to her, then don't do it. That's basically what he's saying here. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, again, those who aren't given to marriage, who are born that way, some who just don't have the, the draw, the appeal of being married. Those who are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, I'm not going to talk about that, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, which is, I think is kind of like Paul. He's decided to be like a eunuch, you know, like in a symbolic sense. So without talking about the physical attributes of eunuchs, they're like a eunuch. They don't want to get married because they see, I want to serve God. And rather than putting my full devotion, which is right into a marriage situation, I want to give my full devotion to God and serve his kingdom as, say, like Paul did, like a missionary who traveled and radically he never stopped traveling. Radically preach the word. And of course he ends. The one who can accept this should accept this. Again, I like this about Jesus. Is he told us something pretty amazing about marriage. And then he said this. Make up your own mind. Right? That's what he's saying here. He goes, here's marriage. Marriage is lasting. It's everlasting. It comes from God. It's like concrete. You break it. You're making a mess. So if you're going to do it, commit to it. Yes, there are circumstances when divorce is necessary, but they're pretty tragic. Pretty tragic situations. They're not cheap little things like, oh, she burnt the toast. Okay? It's not simple and cheap like that. Or, oh, we just don't get along as much as we used to. Oh, we lost that spark. Ah! That's what drives me nuts. You know, because of your horrible, wicked heart that he gave us this certificate of divorce. But... But I like what he says here is this, but guys, listen, if you're going to get married, make sure you can commit your whole life to it. If you can't, don't do it. That's what I see here. There are those who've chosen not to do it for various reasons. Either they themselves don't care for it or they've been turned off or changed somehow that they can't. 
or they've devoted themselves to the kingdom of God. The, the one who can accept this should accept this. Again, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And I think that, again, concludes this Bible study with, again, I, and I think, I, I think it's, it fits into this passage of Scripture we've been dealing with in Matthew 18 going into 19 very well because isn't it about how we treat each other? Isn't it about how we look after and care for each other? I think the idea about being a Christian, especially coming from chapters before, about picking up your cross and following you and not living for yourself, it's like we need to treat people right. And here, the Pharisees came about this situation almost like, what can I get out of it? Even the disciples kind of look at it like, well, what can we get out of it? You know what I'm saying? The Pharisees are like, well, I'm not going to get married unless I can get rid of her. Disciples, well, why get married if you can't get rid of her? You know, it's almost like, what can I get out of it? But as Christians, as disciples, as Christ-like followers, it's not really about us and what we can get out of it. It's about caring for other people, loving for other people, doing the right thing for other people, doing kind of what Jesus does. You know, he didn't moan and greet because these multitude kept following him around, even though they were complete consumers and complete <laughs> widows, if you will. Ah, they're following me around again. They're unconverted, they're unrepentant, but yet they follow me around. He still loved them, and he still cared for them. He gave his life for them. You see what being a Christian is all about? It's not about asking, well, I don't know. You only have one life to live, so I don't know if I want to live with this one. And even if you feel that way, then don't even bother going there. Because she deserves more, or he deserves more than that. Because as people, we're made God's image, and we have this intrinsic value that Christianity so wonderfully believes that, that we are, people matter, lives matter.